everyone, this is Jen Fisher, Associate Pastor of Forefront Brooklyn in NYC. In today's episode, we sit down for a conversation about the history of church movements in the U.S. with our friend Doug Paget, the founder and pastor of Solomon's Porch, a holistic missional Christian community in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Doug's also the author of the book Flipped, the provocative truth that changes everything we know about God. You can hear more from Doug in person, along with other Midrash NYC guests like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren at the Open Faith 2016 National Conference, happening in Indianapolis, Indiana, October 5th through the 7th. To learn more, visit theopennetworkus.org slash events. And now, here's episode 10 with Doug Padgett. My name is Doug Padgett. And I'm the pastor at Solomon's Porch Church in Minneapolis. And I say that with just a little hesitation because I say that externally to people so they sort of have a category for what we do. But um, in this community, we structure it a little differently where I don't have a pastoral function here. But to an outsider, it would sort of be comparable to being a pastor because I started the church mm-hmm. and initiated this happening. And I'm responsible in my work life and out of my passion to coordinate uh, a weekly meeting that we have, um, which is a Sunday like gathering time, uh, like a church, mm-hmm. like a church meeting. So it looks and feels an awful lot like that. But we don't use the internal language of being a pastor or not. But so I was the founder of this church community mm-hmm. and um, give leadership to it and organize it. And uh, pastoring is what this community does in its entirety, and everyone does equally. So mm-hmm. it's got that kind of structure to it. In addition to that, I work work to coordinate networks of leaders and of people who are involved in entrepreneurial and interesting efforts of Christianity in the world um, across, across denominations uh, and most interestingly to me uh, inside of the progressive non-denominational free church evangelical stream mm-hmm. and, um, and I'm recognizing that we live in a cultural age in which that expression of religion of Christian religion in America is pretty significant and it needs some organizing so so that's work that I do to think about not only the on the ground experience of this you know three four hundred person community in Minneapolis that's on the corner of 46th Street and Blaisdell Avenue <laughs> inside of the building we're in right now right <laughs> and has a building and has a life and has people and that is uh, a whole rich lived community of people engaged with each other. And then this kind of national organizing and big ideas thing. Mm-hmm. And so I do both of those, both of those worlds uh, and I wanna, simultaneously. I want to share a minute about um, the experience of being inside of your church as well, uh-huh. because oh, yeah. it is this old building, yeah. old church building. But when you walk in, um, the sanctuary is filled with couches and pictures and tables. Yeah. And will you tell us a little bit about why you guys set up your space that way and what you have going downstairs in the basement, all of that. Yeah, yeah. So this the particular building we're in now is our third space. We've outfitted it the way we have our previous two spaces as well. It, it took some extra work in this building. This is a 1930s era Methodist church building. Um, and the Methodists took their architecture very seriously. They mm-hmm. architect their buildings to fit the meaning and the way of how people would be shaped and formed to be a Methodist. The room we're sitting in right now in this upper garret part of the building, this third floor part, 
has a chalkboard in it, <laughs> and every room in this building, including storage rooms, have chalkboards in them huh. from when they first built them in the 1930s because every room was turned into an educational uh, site because Methodists taught a method of spiritual spirituality and um, the classes system for the Methodists was really important. So they were really built around creating a class structure and that kind of instruction. Hmm. And um, so we're in this building that was built in the, the much of the non-sanctuary part of the building was built for teaching through a particular methodology that would have been really meaningful in the late 1800s through the mid-centuries, the mid-century of the 1900s. Um, the sanctuary itself is built in the structure that is typical for a lot of churches where it's designed as an upside-down arc. I don't know if you knew that when you went in there, but it's got that, it's got that uh, A-frame ceiling mm -hmm. that is like the bottom of a ship. Oh, I so see. Yeah. the way the Methodists mm -hmm. would talk about it is that if you inverted it and flipped it over, it would be a boat. Mm -hmm. Their theory of church was it's like the ark, that Noah's ark, that you get into to be the ones to receive the, the safety of the promises of God. Mm -hmm. So they designed this whole building with a very particular narrative around it. Oh. Um, I'm not Methodist. That's not why we're in the building. That's not what we want. <laughs> but we wanted to do something equally as thoughtful with the building in a way to be part of that tradition of communities thinking about how they do what they do, creating the outcomes that they want. So, you know, if you're into Marshall McLuhan, then this is the medium is the message. Mm -hmm. Or the way you meet is what shapes you. How you do what you do shapes you much more than even mm -hmm. what you say. Um, so we've designed the place, moving the place of speaking from the raised stage with built-in architectural amplification to both the middle of the room and the entirety of the room. So we've designed it so that people, so that it's sort of meets in the round. And the reason for that is then there's no front and everyone is in a place where you can see other people that you're, mm -hmm. it's designed so that most of the time you can see more people than you can't see. So mm -hmm. that's, a, that's what we're trying to do because we think people living their collective Christian experience face-to-face -face creates a different lived experience over time than people who exist face-to-back-of-head mm -hmm. in lined-up rows. So we take that sort of theoretically really seriously mm -hmm. um, and then have tried to design it in ways that, that can work. And <clears throat> there's a lot of ways that the building doesn't work well for us. We, we This conference we're at now, we use microphones for this, but mm -hmm. we don't use them in our gatherings. Mm -hmm. um, it gets hard for people to hear, mm -hmm. and that's part of the point. We, mm -hmm. want, we want the exchange of someone sharing and someone listening to have effort on both sides. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're in the room, like we have been, and they have those, the sound on, and we talk through the microphones, not only do you not have to work to hear, you almost can't help but hearing, mm -hmm. and you almost can't do anything else because it's loud enough, right? Whereas, yeah. Yeah. So it, then that conversation takes over, and it changes the exchange. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to say when someone shares something, whether it's a sermon or a comment or a, an announcement or a prayer, all of those are really important, and we want the sender, deliverer of it, and the receiver, the one who hears it, to both be committed to that action. 
Mm-hmm. So that you have to listen to each other. Um, so we're trying to, and that's what you would do in interpersonal communication, right? Like uh-huh. you would always have this aha, uh-huh, and then you look <laughs> and people smile at each other and you laugh and you uh-huh. do these little pauses. We kind of know as human beings how to do that interpersonal relationships. But it's really hard to know how to do that with a collective. What if you have 100 or 200 or 300 people? Mm-hmm. How would you do that? You know, so we're, we're sort of experimenting with that. So yeah, the building's outfitted with household furnitures. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's an aesthetic and also a bit of a, of, of a storyline. You just live differently with someone when you're sitting on a couch with them than when mm-hmm. you're sitting on another kind of furniture. There's something in the lived American experience of home-like furniture that changes your 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 sense of where I am right now. Yeah, I definitely. I, I did you feel that like, when yes. you were here? Yeah. We sit down on the couch and there's it's me and my three male colleagues and we all slink yeah. into this couch together yeah. and I'm like, this is a different feeling. This <laughs> is a yeah. different feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for some people it's totally disquieting and for other people it feels just great. But um, so we. And, and it's not, as you know, there's other chairs and lots of lonely sp- places to sit alone, mm-hmm. aloneness spots, because for a lot of people, they... That's it. So anyway, yeah. we have a complex place. We make all of our own art in this community. We make all of our own music. We make all of our own sermons. We Everything here is house-made. Mm-hmm. So, and that has a certain complexity to it, right? That makes that makes things not, not as easy uh, to do all the time. Um, so... You know, yeah, I'm, I love what you were saying. I got stuck in this idea of um, um, how you do things is yeah. is even more important than what you say yeah. as you're doing them. Yeah. Um, and so that's making me think about yesterday or two days ago. I, this whole week is a blur yeah, of one right. long day now. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> thinking about one of the first conversations we had when we got mm-hmm. here you spoke about these four periods or ages of church yeah. um, and American church specifically yeah. I guess and I'm really thinking about that now in terms of of how we structured church and how we did yeah. things through those ages and how they informed how we talked about God and how we yeah. interacted with each other would you give us would you kind of recap for us sure. um, what those four periods are yeah and the reason I started thinking about this was uh, partly because I was informed in my college days um, by studying anthropology, cultural anthropology, and sociology, and thinking about the social structures of how human beings organize their lives mm-hmm. um, is really interesting to me. Like, we don't always know what ancient peoples or peoples around the world thought, but we can see how they lived. Because mm-hmm. you have artifacts and right. stuff, right? Yeah. So it was super interesting to me. I got into Christianity without any familial background. So my family was non-religious, and I converted into Christianity, you know, as a as a Christian convert uh, in my late teenage years with no background at all. And it was generous uh, evangelicals who welcomed me in. And in that world, you just what it meant to be converted and to be brought into that world was you started doing things. You mm-hmm. led and you talked, and it was the people I was around were just like you know. It was it's much more like a swim team than it was um, uh, uh, anything else. Like when you're on a swim team and you go to swim practice, you swim. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you, don't do, you don't do other things. You, you start by swimming. And this world was just like, hey, if you're in this, then you start leading. And yeah. And so I never had a feeling that there was a way you had to do Christianity for the first two, three, four or five years. Now. I just thought, well, different people are going to do it differently. And then I start studying anthropology and thinking like, so human beings organize differently and religion is a human organized creation, how we do it. 
most denominations and traditions are an ethnic expression of what Christianity looks like. So, you know, Lutheranism comes out of Sweden and Germany Mm -hmm. and Presbyterians come out of Scotland and the Episcopal tradition comes out of England and uh, the the Mennonites come out of uh, Germany and like they're and they still are mostly ethnic traditions right and um, so they all have their own way of living and doing and being so I started kind of watching this not not being committed to any and wondering how did we get here then I started thinking about these the development of North American history and and I suggest as as other people do as well that we're in the fourth period of cultural development in North American history. Okay, so, and that's the kind of statement that like super smart people who study this are like, all right, that's a little simple, but <laughs> just take it as the, as the simple, like, like when you have that family photo that hangs in your house and mm-hmm. someone looks at it and they're like, oh, that's your family. That's true. We have these three or five or seven people. And yeah, okay, yeah. At one point they looked like that. And, yeah. just, and it's not the entirety of your family, but it's really helpful to know, oh, so you're married to that person. You have these children. They have, may have these children, they're, they're mm. these ages. So it's accurate and really useful, even though it can't say everything. It's not supposed to. Sure. But these four ages are like the snapshot. And I suggest they are the agrarian age, the industrial age, the information age, and this fourth period we're in that I refer to as the inventive age. Um, the reason it's in the, the inventive age, that word is, I was trying to find I words. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, the agrarian age, I referred to as the idyllic age, because in mm-hmm. sociology and anthropology, that's what they call that period. Oh, but nobody else does. They call it the agrarian age. So mm-hmm. it was the idyllic age, the industrial age, the information age. So keep me consistent. Mm-hmm. I tried lots of other words with uh, words for that, too, to have a common first letter, C words. and you know. So mm-hmm. sort of, but anyway, um, so these four cultural periods exist. And... They roughly move in in some year divisions. Um, almost everything up to the 1850s in the United States and early 1800s in Europe, this taxonomy puts in the agrarian age. Like um, that people, and people lived in a certain way in the agrarian age for all of human history, close to one another, close to the ground, and close to the place that they were born. Most people in the agrarian age don't didn't travel more than 100 miles from the place they were born. If you did, that was extraordinary and pioneering and a big mm-hmm. deal. So all around the world. So religion <laughs> is one of the cultural artifacts that comes out of every age. So every age has a way of organizing humanity. And the way we talk to each other, the, the commerce that we use, the way we do travel, the way we do medicine, the way we think, the way we educate, the way we do our religion are all formed and shaped inside of a cultural context. Mm-hmm. little side note, I'm one of those people that suggests there is no neutral culture. Everything is in yeah. some version, some expression, and just seems common sense. Yeah, to me. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah, right. So there's no, so religion then is a culturally constructed, um, way of living and being and talking about things that one thinks are important. So the agrarian age had a particular expression of church, and it's what we often refer to as the parish model church, organized around liturgy and organized around a a parish um, physical space. So Catholic churches, Episcopal churches, Orthodox churches, they will talk about being a parish. And then you'll hear that word in other mm-hmm. times. And parish then all of a sudden means like if uh, when, when Hurricane Katrina happened and they would talk about 
Um, mm. uh, it was one of the famous parishes there uh, in, in Louisiana. Um, now, I forgot the name of it, mm. uh, but they would refer to that par- because that's in, in uh, Louisiana, that's how they refer to a county as a parish. Oh. <laughs> and that's where this name comes from. So the parish meant that it was the church that was the church for all the people that lived in that area, in that county, in that town, in that parish. So that's why we call it, well, the word parish sort of gives the, stru- gives the name for the structure and also then the structure gives the name for the, for the parish. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's just like that's how we organize. So religious people mm-hmm. organized around, you're the pastor, the leader, the priest for everybody who lives here. And it, it kind of doesn't matter. Maybe you'd have a Protestant church and maybe a Catholic, but very often not. And mm-hmm. Because the agrarian age tended to be so homogeneic, it was the Catholics lived here, the Protestants lived here. We see that all over the United States, right? You know, mm-hmm. Not just in big cities do you have Chinatown and Germantown. You have that in whole, whole regions and areas. Yeah. Okay, so there's this whole thing about how you do church in that age. And that liturgical expression is what birthed an awful lot of what many of us think about as the, as uh, Christianity in the Middle Ages. So a lot of our theology, our ecclesiology, how we structure churches, a lot of the ways we think about one another all come out of this agrarian age. And it's really expired. And not that we don't have agrarian life anymore, but we don't do agrarian life. We don't grow things the way we did uh, in the parish model. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in the 1850s, 1870s, 1890s, early 1900s in the United States, people started moving from rural environments into urban environments. And it's what sociologists call the industrialization. And a couple of things were happening. The great inventions of the agrarian age were now being put into practice on scale in urban environments. So people started moving from rural areas to urban areas. Mm-hmm. As they moved into these rural and into these urban areas, now you had people from different languages, from different backgrounds, from different traditions, all moving in together. And now they're now you're not just the pastor for the entire town or the entire parish. Mm-hmm. Now across the street, if you're a I don't know a Presbyterian, you've got a Methodist, and down the way there's a Lutheran, and mm-hmm. over there there's a Congregationalist, and also you have different religious expressions of Christianity that are accessible in this new burgeoning urban environment. Mm-hmm. You guys are in New York. You can just see it. You can walk through the from the agrarian age right into the industrial age in New York. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. Right? I mean, man, it's called Manhattan because it means rolling hills in the indigenous language, right? Mm-hmm. You go to the north part of Manhattan, and it's still rolling hills. They just flattened all that stuff out, put a city in there. And you see these churches, and you can even tell kind of what part of town or what ethnic group first, mm-hmm. because yeah, they'll definitely. even call it first Methodist or First yeah. Presbyterian or uh-huh. something, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was a way of work. And now church changes. So now people aren't like, well, I'm concerned about everybody. Now people are having to compete in their ethnic brand against the others. Not that they're opposed to them, but they just have to say, what does it mean to be Presbyterian or Methodist? Mm-hmm. And that period caused the, these churches to organize their denominations in relationship to the fact that there's a bunch of other choices. Yeah. Like if you were Germans in Germany, you had a little Anabaptist pull up, but you basically had a state religion mm-hmm. of Germany. When you come to the United States, immigrants come to the United States and they're trying to make that expression. Now it's in competition with all these mm-hmm. others. So it's a really interesting um, uh, cross-competition mm-hmm. uh, that's that, that's happening. So then the, the leader is not yeah. the pastor to all the peoples. Mm-hmm. 
is now the brand representative that yeah. has to teach that particular doctrine in comparison to the others. That was that was one of the things that really started to make me think when you were talking about that mm-hmm. of this idea of us being brand ambassadors for whatever mm-hmm. denomination or you know whatever we believe yeah. and I just I for me especially how do you even figure that out? How do you figure out what brand you're supposed to be a part of? And all yes. these pastors that I know in New York Everybody says, I grew up this, and yes. now I'm a pastor in this. And it's like, what does that even mean? Right. So, yeah. 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 And, and that's what's happened in these later, these later years, you know, in these, other, in these other eras, is we've started to not put as much credence in that. And for people to leave the tradition that they were raised in seems totally common. Yeah. Of course you are. Very would. common. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, that's where you started. It's not where you're going to end. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't the case in the industrial age church. They, you wouldn't leave. In fact, so the pastor would be in a retirement program, would be in a guild of other pastors, and you mm-hmm. never left it. The plan, it plan was that you, you, in fact, you couldn't even conceive of the fact that you would. If you did, you would be like deconverting and joining some other tradition. And yeah, it it's just, like you're cutting off your arm to yeah. switch from yeah the Methodist to Lutheran. In, in, in <laughs> fact, people wouldn't even marry people outside yeah. of their outside of their tradition. Yes, you know, uh, yeah, I remember so, that from generations of my family. Yeah. Like it was a really big deal if I mean if a Catholic married a Lutheran oh, that yeah. was like that was like bringing together the Great Reformation you oh, know, yeah. solving the problem. I totally it know was, what you're talking about. <laughs> so, so that period produced an awful lot of things, including at an organizing level, a denominational system, which had a headquarters. Every denomination has a national headquarters somewhere. You can go to every mm-hmm. one of them, mm-hmm. and then they have these affiliates that report back, or the headquarters speaks to but not for. Mm-hmm. Sometimes speak for but not to. So all this stuff, right? But it's organized around um, centralized expression of practice mm-hmm. for the most part. Mm-hmm. You should know what it feels like to go into a Presbyterian church. They do a thing, and they have a hymnal that's the Presbyterian hymnal, and they Methodists have a separate hymnal. They mm-hmm. might have some shared mm-hmm. songs, but they have their separate songs, and right, mm-hmm. they have their separate mm-hmm. liturgy. They have their separate ways of doing communion, even different words for it. Right, all this stuff that's very brand specific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like walking into a, you know, into a, a Starbucks yep. and asking for a large, yeah. you know, and they just gently correct you and say that's a. <laughs> I don't even know what it is. It's a, it's a tall venti. The venti yeah. is a large, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the venti, right? And you're like, oh, that's how you say it here. And other, yeah, the yeah. other place, they call it a large. Right. Yeah. Right. So all these brands have their very specific language set. And at the same time, you can go to a Starbucks in Minnesota or a Starbucks in New York, and you're going to find that same culture and that familiarity, mm-hmm. which is what people tend to yeah. look for, and they can. You so know, they really like so. it, and mm-hmm. you could see how that version could spread all over the country sure, really yeah. easily because now the repeatability that was the great gift of mm-hmm. the industrial of industrialization, mm-hmm. you can make. With factories, you can make copies. Henry Ford, mm-hmm. right? We're going to reproduce all. There, when Henry, Ford, this is a little nerdy thing. When Henry Ford started making cars, there were like eight hundred car companies. Mm-hmm. The thing that made Ford the, the winner was they didn't hand make every car. Mm-hmm. They found a way to use the assembly line to make the same car over and over and mm-hmm. over. Right? That was the beauty. There used to be so many people making so many cars. Now you know you have a very select group that make. Uh, a repeatable experience. So church, because that was the, the mode of the industrial age, church thought what we should do is make versions of ourselves. So now confirmation and spiritual formation was, am I becoming a good Methodist? Am I becoming yep. a good Presbyterian? And that wasn't about not being faithful to God or Christian or something. It was about, no, that's how we do it around here. That's mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. the that's the recipe that we use. It's really- one, one of my... Um- 
lady pastor friends <laughs> in New York, uh, Jess, who uh, she talks about how I think it's West End Collegiate is the very first corporation in America. Their yes. corporation number, I think, is like 001, yeah, yeah. Um, which is making me think about this. It's the same idea of the industrial age. It's corporations. Yes. Here the church is following that model. It's, yeah. That's right. So then they started forming a way to organize that was rep- that was um, recognized by the government in the corporation structure, and in New York, the collegiate system, which was is like eight or nine churches, or mm-hmm. had been that many, <clears throat> was the first one. So they formed a way to organize themselves, and then every other corporation in New York has followed that. Yeah, amazing. Um, yeah. Mm. So that's the industrial age, and then the, what's moving on right, to the so, third yeah. age. So, so and, and by the way, this is happening in every industry in culture. The same kinds of, you could have the same conversation mm-hmm. and replace religion with schools and pastor with teacher. You could mm-hmm. do it with transportation. And so it's every part of culture. The, the successes of the industrial age then, because of a couple of situations in the United States, including the high school movement, which is a really big deal and a lot of people mm-hmm. don't know about. Yeah. But in the 1920s, the United States decided that we would educate every child equally through age 18. Well, that dream obviously isn't fulfilled. It's not equal education. But the idea mm-hmm. that in sixth grade and ninth grade, you don't choose a trade track was revolutionary. Mm-hmm. In fact, most of the world, that's still how you do it. You reach eighth or ninth grade, and then you start into a trade or university track. Mm-hmm. But it's not shared education. What the innovators in the United States said was, we want to take literacy from 12% and get it up to 100%. So everyone is fully literate with the same educational standards so that everyone's equal. Fascinating. And a huge, huge argument about that. In fact, the arguments that are happening about public schools and private or charter schools right now, and when a Republican presidential candidate wants to get rid of the Department of Education, Mm -hmm. they're actually still arguing the same public education uh, conversation yeah. that was going on in the in the early uh, 1920s. They and just haven't finished the argument yet. We're only talking about the 1920s. It's yes. less than 100 years ago that we're yeah. talking about. Which yeah, in is 1920s, so... 24% of the U.S. population was literate. Wow. It's fascinating. In 1940, it was under 50%. But it's, it's you know, it's remembering that we're moving from that agrarian age yeah. to this industrial age. And, yeah, no, and I'm, I'm getting it. the fascinating thing yeah. is that when you're in the industrial age, you don't need to be literate. No. Like, what... What's that going to do for you? Right. You, you work in a, you move from a farm in the agrarian age to the factory. You learn in how the to make age. use the machine. That's all you need to know. Yeah. yeah. And if you go off to school, then people are like, "What are you, Mister Smarty Pants?" Yeah, right? yeah. You sort of know those <laughs> narratives, and then certain people sort of elevate up and are pulled out of a town or out of a city. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then that begins to transition. The high school movement, World War II, the booming mm-hmm. of the U.S. economy, the investments in housing for GIs in the baby boom was mm-hmm. a really big the kind of the, the back end of of why all this happened that people started then to move from urban environments to suburban environments because mm-hmm. it was cheap free house cheap to free housing so now the movement went from where am i from on the farm what do i produce in the factory to what do i know and schools became the center of cultural organizing so if you're organized around the farm in the agrarian age and the factory in the industrial age, it became the knowledge center of the public school. The public school movement hit 
uh, was so well accepted that we started to organize our cities around where would the school be first and then all the housing and everything else. Mm-hmm. So you go to every first ring suburb, you know, the, the first suburb outside the city and then the second rings are connected to the first ring. You go to every one of those and this, it's the elementary school and high school that is the center of the structure of, mm-hmm. of the town. Really, and then people now were not in their ethnic expressions anymore. Now they were all coming together on this commonality of the school. And that's when we first start talking about the great melting pot. Hmm. It's coming out of the 1940s and 1950s. And now we're not going to have separate communities built around separate outputs. Everyone's going to be mixed together. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. And in that age, the thing that becomes important is not what you know or what, where, where you're from or what you do, but it's what you know. And there's a new kind of religious expression that grows up in that in that period uh, that was founded by a whole bunch of people very intentionally that they referred to as neo-evangelicalism or the new evangelicalism. Mm. Evangelical meaning the good news. So this is a new expression of the good news. So evangelicals started and were formed in the late 1940s and the 1950s to meet the needs of a changing world inside of suburban growing America. Mm. And... What they didn't want to do was make people have to stay in their denominational brands because they knew that when people moved to these new towns, so then the denominational brands are racing to these suburbs and so are the evangelicals. But the evangelicals said, well, let's say you're a Methodist and you married a Presbyterian. We'll welcome both of you because it's not where you're from and it's not uh, what your experience was. It's what you know. So you can almost see the front of the church signs that tell you what town you're in to what brand of Christianity you're going to experience to the topic of the sermon. At that period of time, in the late 1940s, especially the early 50s and 60s, all these expressions creating a whole new educational model for adults and children. Curriculum, camps, teaching, people are going to colleges, evangelicals move on to college campuses and start doing evangelism because there's a brand new mission field where now you have thousands and thousands of college-aged people. Mm-hmm. getting together on college campuses that are the product of the baby boom. So mm-hmm. now they're on the college campus, so you start forming a whole new community of people that are dislocated from their homes. Mm-hmm. They're on college campuses, and that's where evangelicalism is born. It's just a, a brilliant strategy of organizing. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with their outcomes or the, the ways they would say it, but as their organizing principle, it was just it was ingenious. So then it became about what you know. The problem is for many of us now is that we live in a post-information age. Mm-hmm. Information does not have the, the value that it had at one time. Knowing things is just like, well, that's very, it's got a very short shelf life. Any bit of knowledge you have, you know, is going to be improved upon at some point mm-hmm. very quickly. And the distribution of knowledge um, can't come through a knowledge hoarder. It has to come through a knowledge distributor. Mm-hmm. But churches in the information age saw themselves as knowledge hoarders. So come to this church and you will hear something you can't hear anywhere else. Because I was raised Lutheran in the Midwest and, you know, we weren't reading all the books mm-hmm. and going, you know, there wasn't yeah. any of that, any of that. <laughs> no. You read the little, little Luther's little thing and then you listen to a 10 minute sermon, sermon and yeah. like you that got confirmed it. and da-da. Um, but then when I moved into this non-denominational yeah, realm, evangelical world, which, which I was drawn to because I just wanted to hear some good music, mm-hmm. um, suddenly there are all these books to read, there are all these well-known authors, there's, you know, yeah. you don't know what Hillsong is? How can you not yeah. know what Hillsong is? Yeah. And all these things, and I'm like, I wasn't raised in this culture. Yeah. This to me is completely crazy. Yeah. It just feels like 
you're you're getting products <clears throat> yes. sold at you yes. as a, um, as a in, in, in information distribution yeah uh, which force. so hearing you put it all this way is making me be a little less judgmental towards right. it all because now I get the strategy behind that's it. That's what you did. But, yeah. right? You said we know yeah. things. You should know things. Come, yeah. come join us, and you'll know things. Yeah, yeah. So now pastors start putting these adjectives on their on their title. I'm now a teaching pastor. Mm-hmm. Right. When I talk to people about organizing seminaries, they're like, "But the problem is we have to prepare people for the agrarian age, the industrial age, and the information age. And then I suggest, well, mm-hmm. actually, think about this fourth period because there's this other change that's coming. Mm-hmm. And information, it's not that we don't want information. We just know it has to play a different role. Mm-hmm. So that brings on, I th- and the dawning of the information age, which is probably going to best be described as whenever we agree that the internet became a populist communication tool. Yeah. Because the internet changed information. It moved it from um, a hoarding model to a distribution model where it was designed to be boundless and you couldn't restrain the information. The point wasn't to have all the information in one place, like a library. Mm-hmm. It was to have it distributed through the network so it would constantly be, th- be, be flowing to the point that now people don't think about what do I know. They think about... Where do I get that information? I yeah. don't have to have it in my head. <clears throat> I can have it accessible to me in lots of places. And some of us feel badly about that. We're like, boy, I can't even remember anyone's phone number anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would remembering someone's phone number be an important thing? Other right. than it was meaningful <laughs> as a way that yeah. you determined who mattered to you in your life. Yeah. Instead of who didn't matter to you. And it was a way that I said you're important to me because I know your phone number. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And you couldn't get it anywhere else. So people would print it in books on thin, thin paper. And they were really thick. And they would drop them at your doorstep Uh called the phone book. right? Uh Uh, And every family had the same phone number. Maybe there'd be a kid's line. And you'd Mm -hmm. see that thing in the phone book. You know, it's like the kid's line. Mm -hmm. And now we don't think about that at all, right? It's like, no, there's a different way to be connected to each other. So we just think on knowledge in such a different way. Mm -hmm. And this is moving us into a world in where in which the experience that we have and the ability to interpret our experience is more important than the information that we can gain. So I think what we're, those of us who are in the church world, is we will have to create the kind of church expression that fits this, I call it the inventive age because people are creating their own futures. Mm -hmm. That in the inventive age, we're going to have to figure out what does church look like that matches this age and the lived experience of people as well as the information age had evangelicalism and the industrial age had denominationalism and the agrarian age had its um, parish model expressions. And that's, so that's super interesting work, right? Like, mm-hmm. hey, we're actually, do, we're, we are doing in our day what people have done before us. Like, yeah. so I see it as very traditional in that sense, uh-huh. right? That you're not, re- a tradition not in the sense of repeating what other people did and said, but doing in your time what others did in their day. Mm-hmm. That's how you're part of the tradition. So, and I find, so I'm a millennial. I'm 31 years old. I'm on the older end of the millennials. So I came out of college with a theater degree and moved to New York City. And the very next year, the recession began. And just life as as we were expecting it to be started to shift and change. And suddenly, 
my friends and I find ourselves in this completely different shifting environment of different values. Um, whereas our parents are telling us, go get a job with, yeah. you know, that you can be in for the next 20 years and get a pension and benefits. And we're going, yeah. I'm lucky if I can find a job yeah. at all. Yeah. So I'm going to take this free internship instead. And, and so I'm sitting here thinking about these things and, and thinking about that experience that my generation is living mm-hmm. and trying to figure out as we go. And um, it makes a lot of sense that we would have so much emphasis or um, that we would more, much more value meaningful experiences yes. because because the old the old ways of of checking the box on life or you know filling your resume are gone yeah. and so we're navigating huh. a whole new system um, and yeah, they're yet, not even accessible anymore they're not even accessible anymore and yet what I find fascinating about it though is still that there is enough of those old institutions and mm-hmm. um, you know I experienced this in, in trying to navigate the theater industry. And um, there are enough of these old institutions still where there are, are baby boomers and, and older folks saying, you need to do things my way and that this is the way that we do it. And if you want the money, then this is how it goes. And yeah. um, it makes complete sense to me that we would then start to say, screw you, I'm going to create my own thing. Yep. And uh, like, I don't need to do things your way. I'm going to find it. I'm going to yeah. find my own way of doing yeah. it. Um, so my question then leading into that is, here we are sitting at this open gathering where you know we talk about how important networking is we talk about we're using these these old words like evangelical and all that yeah. that really kind of make i mean i can't speak for everyone but as a millennial that e-word makes me cringe mm-hmm. like i don't want to be associated with that i don't want to have to play by those rules anymore um i you know we're walking away from church because the game is being played the old way and we're we want something different yes. so talk a little bit about how hard it is or how exciting it is to be sitting in this place where we have an opportunity to navigate this and find a different way of doing church Mm -hmm. together um, and the possibilities that are out there for this and what it means because we're still sitting on the cusp. Yeah, Um, and and it's really insightful because everyone always feels like they're right on the cusp and they're not in the new thing yet. This mm -hmm. is a funny way that you can read it through history, how people describe their lived experience at every period feels like everything is changing and we're not quite there yet. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone always feels like you're right in the middle and you can't quite get fully there. That's not a problem to be solved. That is a dilemma to live within. Mm. So that's very normal and we will all experience it all the time because as it turns out, this is this is a gradation of color not crossing a line. Mm-hmm. And those and that gradation of color continues to change o- over time, right? So you're always transitioning in and out of something. Mm-hmm. You know, as somebody who's 49 and is the older end of the of the Gen Xers, mm-hmm. right? The Gen Xers used to be 20 years ago when we were doing this work, and I was 29. Mm-hmm. When we were organizing and leading. It was like everything was about Gen X, right? Mm-hmm. And we couldn't quite get there because we're not quite in the world of Gen X. And then, and then you're like, now there's the millennials, and then yeah. everything's about the millennials. There's always but, that tension between the, the all, yeah, new and, generation and the, and the baby old. Baby boomers yep. were like, no, we're not like those people. Don't right. trust anybody over 30. I mean, yeah. you're 31, and you <laughs> yeah. think you're the deal. You were the enemy back to the baby yeah, boomers yeah. in the 60s. I know. Right? Yeah. So the generational thing, and this is how I got into all these eras is the generational thing is a way to describe the human experience in North America, but it's not very helpful. Mm-hmm. There's other things happening as well. It's almost like when you go to the ocean and you can see the waves, the waves are 
in this metaphor, the generations. You can mm-hmm. see them, they're obvious. Oh, how old are you? That means you're born here. And you know, you had the Great Recession. Well, sort of the 1970s, right? So baby boomers are like, no, we grew up during mm-hmm. you know, the, the oil embargo, gas lines, people couldn't work, 16% uh, inflation, a failing economy, Jimmy Carter, the Malays, uh, Vietnam, right? Okay, so yeah. everyone's got, we shot, I saw the shuttle blow up. Yeah. I was a latchkey kid. Yeah. You have a helicopter parent, right? Okay. I had 9-11. You had like, 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so we have all yeah. this, right? <laughs> Everybody's got those. Um, so those are the waves that you see. I think that what you know what causes the waves is the fact that the tides are coming and going and the riptide is pulling back out. So what's creating the wave is the fact that under the water the current's running the other direction. Mm. And that's what creates the wave. So there are two things happening, the waves in the generational thing and then the undertow which are these greater cultural shifts that are happening. Mm. And a lot of us have used many kinds of uh, many kinds of expressions, language to try to get at this notion of what are these undercurrents. So a lot of us talked about postmodernism for a long time, mm-hmm. or the decline of the family. Like there were lots of mm-hmm. things, and I use these ages, right, as the as the, as the transitional period. So it's soup. And what happens in all of these transitions is there's a change in the reward system. Right. So mm-hmm. that thing you described about yeah. saying to your parents, no, I don't want I don't want the reward of later in life stability. I want the reward of meaning making. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have a different there's different rewards. So the cultural shifts, the big one, because what's happening is there's a bunch of older people in retirement age that are like, I'm tired of the rat race. I want a life of meaning. Yeah. And you're like, I don't want to get in the rat race. I want a life of meaning. That that meaning making is the same experience. In fact, it is the campaign for AARP. Yeah. <laughs> Later, you know, when I, when I grow up, I want to be a, and then they, this whole media campaign around finding meaning in your life. Yeah. Because it's not only about being 19 or 20 or 25, it's also about this larger cultural shift. So it's so then when these rewards shift, right? Then churches start to say, "Oh, what makes a person's life have meaning to it?" Well, being in a category of people, being said, "You're mm. part of our tribe," that doesn't count. Mm. So call me an evangelical or a Lutheran or a Methodist. I, I don't care. Don't like me being in that club is not meaning making. Mm-hmm. But you'll talk to people in religion for whom being a part of that group that is really important. Right, yeah, we yeah. sort of have a thing like I don't know. I'm a member of a lot of things, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. I have lots of these little associations, and it's less about me conforming to that world than it is about that world benefiting from the fact that I'm part of it. Yeah, well, and that's like you know, looking back, you had things like the post and the the. Um, the Legion and and yeah. those kind of things that yeah. those were centers of community for people to be a part of. Yes. And while while our culture has shifted away from those things. I, in New York City, we can see how, oh, I'm pursuing my dreams, I'm going after my passions, I come out to New York City to do those things, I I don't have any sense of belonging anymore. Yes. Whereas before, I maybe did have the sense of belonging to that denomination my parents made mm-hmm. me grow up in. Mm-hmm. Now here I am in New York with no mentors, no like semesters to mm-hmm. anchor me, I don't know what I'm doing, I, I want some authentic community. Yes. And mm-hmm. so we see people in our church at least, coming back to um, looking for community, basically, and looking for an authentic, meaningful way to, yes. to live. And that is where I hope there's, that there's yeah. hope for the church, I guess. Yeah, and, and this becomes interesting for church leaders, right? Because if leadership, 
I like this little definition of leadership that is something like leadership is when you create the conditions by which people can become their most mature selves. Mm-hmm. Right? Leadership is not bringing people to a promised land. It is creating the context where people can live into the, their fullest maturity. And this takes us back to what you were saying before of how mm. you do things is much more important than what you yes. actually say. So <clears throat> so what are we doing, right? So then churches mm-hmm. start to say, oh, I have to create not a group of followers, mm-hmm. but a group of mature people. Yeah, There would be these prayers you'd hear in, in the evangelical world that I came from where people would start out a talk or something and they would somebody say, uh, just, just pray that God would open your ears. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you would receive the message today. That everything was about one person saying something that would benefit the others, and you were responsible to prepare yourself to receive that. Mm-hmm. Like, what in the world mm-hmm. is that? Is that whole thing yeah. all about? Right? That, is that really a? Is there a maturity that comes if someone goes to church? Let's say someone goes to church for five years, and they're kind of averageish, you know. So they go, I don't know. Twice a month. Twice yeah. a month. Mm-hmm. So they're going to go. What was what was twice a month? And they're going to go twenty times. Twenty times a year mm-hmm. for five years. So they're going to go a hundred times. Is somebody benefited by a hundred experiences where they walk in, sit down, listen, and sing along and leave? <laughs> In what possible arena does somebody think you're going to become the most mature version of yourself mm-hmm. if that's what that institution does to you twice a month? Like, like it, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Yeah. It could create conformity. And if the reward system is I'm now part of the community because I did the conforming thing, mm-hmm. then I want that. Well, and that's that consumer mentality too, that I come to church, I consume the music, I, I consume the message, I, I'm here to have things fed into me. Yes. And, you know, shifting that conversation of that's not what this mm-hmm. is about and who are we called to be as the church. Yeah. Um, and especially in this world where we look around, where our generation looks around, and actually this shifts us great into these four P words that you talked yeah. about for this age. Um, we look around and say, you know, there are four things that we can identify or or put into categories that we're all passionate about um, and want to see the church addressing and articulating. Can you tell us a little bit about those things? Uh, Yeah, I think what's happening is we have a culture where people want, there's sort of three, there's three primary impulses. They want to be creators, empathizers, and meaning makers, Mm. right? Those are three pretty good things. Like I want to make something I want to understand the situation I'm in and what I've caused, and I want to live inside of another person's experience and not just my own, and I want to make meaning. You put those three with this desire to have to do creation, empathy, and meaning-making inside of people, with people, with the planet, to solve poverty and to achieve peace. So people, planet, poverty, and peace. Mm -hmm. Now, people who love alliteration and love lists and love things like four ages and three impulses (laughs) and four out, right? They Mm -hmm. love that stuff. And some people are like, oh, my, like... This this is a multi-level marketing shtick where someone's got mm-hmm. it all thought about, right? So it's people, very Twitter-like and all yes, that. We like yeah. that. So, people yeah. should screw around <laughs> with all those things and always remind somebody <laughs> about what's missing and who's not hurt. That empathy thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But people, planet, poverty, and peace. If Christianity in the 21st century and lived Christian experiences said it concerns itself with those three things, that sounds really different than the traditional way that people hear Christianity. There's some traditions, the Reformed tradition of which Lutheranism is uh, a part of or maybe a cousin of in some people's minds, mm-hmm. would say that the, that the purpose of man is to glorify God and to love God forever. 
That's the purpose of man. Mm-hmm. They were like, are you kidding me? No, it's to connect with people and to, and to solve poverty yeah. and to live in a healthy way on this planet and to achieve peace. Like, we can, not gonna, this isn't going to be about preparing myself to get someplace for another time yeah. or another way. But doesn't right. that glorify God during those, those yeah. things? Well, yeah, yeah. So for some people for whom they want to keep that, then people, planet, poverty, peace become mm. this strategy but not the goal. Yes. And okay. this is where it gets mm-hmm. interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Changing reward systems yeah. means you start changing outcomes. Yep. And now you start to have a conversation about what's the strategy and what's the outcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and great. And this has caused an awful lot of stress in people where they think, no, that we've never changed the outcome. The outcome still needs to be the same old outcome from ages gone by the conversation we had you know this morning in the session mm-hmm. we were in in this meeting two presenters were blowing open the outcome mm-hmm. right they were mm-hmm. saying maybe it's not about that at all this mm-hmm. this what, what what are we up to here what are we doing um and other people would say no no no, those strategies are fine they actually serve a greater outcome and then they get to debate that right yeah. and this happened the fun thing about this is this happens in every industry and in every field educators are having this conversation What's the point of testing? Is it the outcome or is it strategy? Mm-hmm. No, we're not teaching to the test. We're using the test to help people learn. Because, right? So mm-hmm. there it is. There's, mm-hmm. there's that. And in medicine, it happens. And in travel, it happens. And is the journey the point? Or no, I actually don't want to talk to you on the airplane. When you guys fly home today, you'll have a decision to make. Is the point of this the journey I'm on? So you're like, hey, where are you from? <laughs> What's your life? What's the yeah. gift you breathe to the world? Because I want to breathe my gift to you. And, and it's a beautiful time when you're like, God bless you. I hope we stay in touch when you get off the airplane and your buddies. Or you're going to put your headphones or on. Or you're, you're a New Yorker and you you're put your headphones look it down on. And you're going to say, this is not about the journey. This is about me getting there so I can give my life back. Because yep. I'm just going to do a time As quickly stall. as possible. Right? All right. So, so what's the strategy and what's the outcome? This is really interesting. So what we're trying to do is to organize people in this inventive age period recognizing that the denominational versions of church and the parish models of churches are not going to recover from the cultural death spiral that they're in. Mm. The cultural currency that they used to operate in is no longer worth very much. Mm. It's a really hard thing for people in denominational systems. So they're trying to fix that. But then there's this whole expression of people are going to churches that come out of this free church and evangelical and evangelical is a funny word because it can mean a whole sector or it can mean a specific set of issues, right? And we do this a yes, lot. Yeah. We use words to sort of be, yeah. sort of zoom in and zoom out like you're on your phone with a pinch. You know? yeah. so you, mm-hmm. If you pinch, uh, if you if you pinch open uh, evangelical too far, it's not interesting. If you pinch it down small enough, you're like, oh, I see. It's, mm-hmm. it's these newish kinds of churches that aren't being told by somebody at a headquarters somewhere about how they have to live and operate. Yep. That's, the, that's the most common expression of Christianity in North America, and they have the most cultural sway. And a lot of the Christian commentary comes out of that tradition. And so we're trying to organize people who are from that tradition and can speak in that currency but want to live in this new world. So you're always in the period just behind to fuel the period that's coming. So our job, I think, is to organize our life in this inventive age period so that whatever's going to follow has, we've done the work that we're supposed to do so that we can keep this thing, so we can keep this thing going. Culture is far more like a relay race Mm -hmm. um, than anything else. So you're going to hand that baton off to the next driving group. This is an exciting conversation because it's just it's it's allowing us to shift the way we think about where church can go, mm-hmm. um, and kind of 
acknowledge and let go. And, and it fits really well into our conversations about faith, culture, and questions as yes. well, because um, it gives you the freedom to say, hey, the culture does influence how we do church. That's okay, and it should. And in order for us to survive and thrive, we should allow the culture yes. to influence us. Whereas so often I think people feel like culture and church have to be two separate things. Yeah. And um, Yeah, that's th- there's a whole theology there of two kingdoms. In Lutheran world, you mm-hmm. call it two kingdoms, right? There's a kingdom of heaven and there's a kingdom mm-hmm. of earth. Really troubling. And other traditions do it differently. We just have to keep yourself from being polluted by the world, right? Yeah, this, yeah. This kind of notion. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then we don't know what the world is. I mean, mm-hmm. Then there's been these expressions that are like, hey, churches are major cultural forces. They create the reality that we're living in. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody doesn't realize it. Like, hey, I was taken over to Presbyterian Hospital. Or I was taken to Methodist Hospital. Or I was taken to Lutheran Deaconess mm-hmm. Hospital. Because the mm-hmm. churches started the hospitals. Yeah. And Harvard was started by yeah. the Congregational Church, right? I remember reading or learning about Ellis Island and how if, if you got, as soon as you got through the line, it wasn't the social services that were there to, to take care of you. It was members of the church yeah. and the Catholic diocese and all that yes. who were there to help you figure out how to live in this yes. new world. And that's who we were, that's who we still are. Yes. And while we think that, you know, we don't have influence, we very much do mm-hmm. have influence. Mm-hmm. And we can choose how we want to to use that influence. Mm-hmm. And that's going to look different in each of these ages, mm-hmm. right? Like, what does the church have to offer? Mm-hmm. Churches start a lot of educational movements in the 1950s forward, a lot of private Christian colleges and all the rest of it. Like, they just got into education and book college. Now, if it's true that people want to be creators, empathizers, and meaning makers, mm-hmm. our churches should be producing the structures that help people become creators, empathizers, and meaning makers. Yeah. Right? So that'd that's, be super fun. Like you go to church yeah. and the question that you're asked is, how are you contributing? And who do you know that we don't know that we should be engaged with? And how do you find meaning in the everyday? So like just at a real basic level, one of the things we're doing now at Salma Sports, the church part of my life, we have people tell their stories on mm-hmm. Sundays where they get interviewed. And over the course of the week, if they're the one that will be interviewed that Sunday, they get a text message five times during the week saying, take a picture of whatever you're doing right now with their phone. Those five images then become the structure of them introducing their life to the rest of us. Huh. Because everything you do in your life is you yeah. and it matters, right? Yeah. So instead of, ha- so it's like a testimony time, if you're from yeah. those traditions, where all we want to talk about is the part of your life that we have an expertise in. How do you think about God or life mm-hmm, or faith or something like mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. And say, like, where do you work? Mm-hmm. And what does your kitchen look like? And it's stunning to me how many pastors are willing to say that they love these people, they're committed to their lives, they're leading them in the way of Jesus. They've never been in their house they don't know what they do for their job, let alone ever been at their work, which is something mm-hmm. that somebody spends a disproportionate amount of time that they're in. They have no idea how they get to work. They don't know what their passions are or their greatest fears are. How do you possibly say, I love you and want to lead you into the way of Jesus, and I actually know nothing about you, but yeah. I'm just kind of doing this in a generic way? Yeah. That is not interesting to most of us anymore. So then we yeah. become a consumer, right? Uh-huh. We become a consumer because we're like, well, you got something and I got something. Well, let's just make a trade. But hey, man, I don't want to talk about it. Um, and I, I think that's, I think if you're going to be creators, empathizers, and meaning makers, you actually have to know how are people making meaning in the world, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I th- like it when churches say things like, what do we do as a church? And they start listing all the jobs that people in their church have. 
because all those things are what we do as a church. Mm -hmm. like uh -huh. We run businesses and hospitals yeah, yeah. and we teach people because we are doing all those things as That's opposed exciting. to when yeah. you stop doing the things that are meaningful for your life mm -hmm. and join into the very narrow strip of the things that we've chosen to organize out of this budget. Mm -hmm. This is a crazy way to think about life. Anyway. Thank you, Doug. I, need yeah, to write a, I have a sermon I have to write on work and you just wrote it for me. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing on Midrash NYC, then please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes or any app that you like listening to us on. And if you're looking for a community committed to asking good questions and figuring out faith, justice, and love with Jesus, then we invite you to check out Forefront NYC. We have two locations, one in Manhattan and one in Brooklyn. You can go to our site at ForefrontNYC.com to learn more.